Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about the disengagement of Islamist terrorists in Indonesia, a topic that has received surprisingly little attention from scholars of terrorism and political violence. While there are many studies about processes and patterns of radicalization, the linkages between different terrorist networks and the strategies and aims they pursue, the circumstances under which Islamist extremists might turn their back on violence and terror remain poorly understood. State-sponsored de-radicalization programs have provided some incentives for militants to reconnect with society, but the results of these programs have been somewhat mixed. So what other factors might play a role in processes of disengagement? Why do some terrorists quit while others don't? And what can we learn from past experiences of disengagement? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions with Associate Professor Julie Cherno Huang, a specialist in terrorism studies and Islamist politics from Goucher College in Baltimore in the United States, and the author of the forthcoming book, Why Terrorists Quit. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Dirk. Okay, let's get started. Um, your book's coming out very soon, and in this book, you present the results of several years of intensive research on Indonesian jihadists. The main focus of this book is not on radicalization, like various other studies, but it's on disengagement of those who are already or have been in the past radicalized. Maybe we start with a brief explanation. How do you explain the concept of disengagement? What does the term mean? Is it the same as de-radicalization? Disengagement is about behavior. It's the process by which a member of a terrorist group, radical movement, gang or cult ceases participation in acts of violence. So fundamentally, it is about what one does and not what one thinks. De-radicalization looks at the delegitimation of the ideology underpinning the use of violence. But in a lot of CVE circles, de-radicalization also becomes something of a proxy for moderation and the revision or abandonment of views on the Islamic State or jihad. Um, and it is not specifically about the conditions under which violence is or is not permissible. Mm. Um, so they're fundamentally different things. One is behavioral and one is ideological. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks for that clarification. Let's talk about the factors that you identify in your book um, that may cause former militants, former terrorists to disengage. Um, it's unlikely to be just one factor, I assume. So what does your research reveal about the reasons for that sort of disengagement that you just described? Which factors are the most significant triggers for disengagement of Islamist terrorists? Well, for my research, what I found is that the linchpin for successful disengagement and reintegration is the establishment of an alternative social network of friends and mentors and supportive family members. And these, in turn can facilitate a priority shift where one focuses on family, where one wants to go back to school, where one focuses on getting a job, putting food on the table. So th this is the corpus of facilitating successful disengagement and reintegration. Now, mm. second to that are disillusionment, which is very commonly discussed in the terrorism studies literature on disengagement, but plays less of a role in Indonesia as a decisive factor. And cost-benefit assessment, where the jihadists realize that the cost of continued violence outweighs any potential benefits. 
So to sum up, it's these four factors and the two that form the linchpin that are the critical factors are the establishment of that alternative social network of friends and mentors and supportive family members and that facilitating the priority shift with the other two uh, disillusionment and the cost benefit assessment being secondary to that. Yeah, okay. So these four factors don't carry the same weight. Um, no. More, much more important are the first two. Okay. So you found these patterns in a very diverse group of militants. Um, Indonesia has a very diverse landscape, so to speak, of uh, militant groups, mm -hmm. of course. And you spoke over the last few years with people who have been engaged with a, yeah, with a number of these groups. So rather than focusing just on, let's say, former Jemaah Islamiyah members, you also interviewed former members from organizations that were active in localized conflicts in Sulawesi, for example, in Poso. So did you find any specific patterns for disengagement that were shaped by organizational background with the groups with whom they were interacting or perhaps by regional background? What I found was that in POSO, the meaning of rational assessment differed. In POSO, it was about changing context. POSO was now peaceful. Hmm. So there is no longer a need to utilize violence. These men, who, when they had gone into prison, Poso had, it had been burnt out. And when they came out, they had this great opportunity. Their city had come back to life while they had been in prison. They had this great opportunity to contribute to rebuilding their city. And there was this idea with rational assessment being that they were assessing Poso as peaceful. It had been a long time since the Christians attacked. There was no longer a need. Whereas among the Java-based jihadis from Jemaah Islamiyah, especially. It was about costs exceeding benefits. So it's a fundamental different assessment. The second thing that was different was that in POSO, family as a motivator for disengagement occurred far more frequently. Parents, spouses, seeing your father cry for the first time, begging you to surrender. This happened in POSO and was critical in POSO far more so than it was among any Java-based jihadis. Family was key as a positive pressure for members of Tanuruntu in promoting their disengagement and their reintegration. People who had the support of parents or a spouse in disengagement and reintegration were far more successful. Conversely, people whose parents supported their continued violent actions were people who continued to participate in acts of violence. You didn't have the strong family connection on Java. And the reason for that is that among those I interviewed, a number of them came from multi-generational jihadi families, or they had married a fellow member of JI from the women's wing. And as a result of that, family was not necessarily a push out. Family was a foot in. Okay, so that's some interesting differences there between POSO-based jihadis and those from Jamaa Islamiyah, mostly based on Java. Can you give us an idea of the people that you interviewed during your research, and did you find any other patterns? What about, for example, the age of the militants, whether they were really young or whether they were um, perhaps more experienced, perhaps had been overseas, perhaps Afghanistan veterans, etc., or the length of membership in these groups, that the, the ties had been 
become tighter for them. Were there any kind of patterns that you could identify that would make disengagement easier or more difficult? I didn't find any linkages with age, education, duration of time in the movement, or necessarily role within the movement. Mm -hmm. Although I would say that supporters and sympathizers had an easier time reintegrating than leaders and operatives. You never fully leave. Even people who say, I'm no longer a member, still help their friends. And this goes for leaders, operatives, and supporters. So I wouldn't say that there were distinct patterns of those factors. One thing that I did see was that it does seem that the way in affects the way out. So people who joined via study circles and local conflicts had far more complex disengagement trajectories compared to those who joined via schools and family. So this means that they saw the presence of all four factors, or at least three of the four. So the alternative social networks, the priority shifts, disillusionment, and the cost-benefit assessment tended to be more present in people who joined via study circles and local conflict mm -hmm. compared to those who joined via schools and families. But this is not absolute. In terms of fighting in a conflict or not among the Afghan veterans, you do tend to see the presence of disillusionment very powerfully, much more than in the case of the guys in POSO and the cost-benefit assessments. Some of them you see priority shifts, some of them you have the new relationships and alternative social networks, but they're less pronounced than the cases of the POSA boys or people who did not go to Afghanistan. So someone might have a friendship that impacted them and caused them to look at the world differently, but they didn't have family and friends and a mentor to construct a full network. The Afghan veterans do tend to stick together. They have an Afghan veterans organization. They still consider themselves largely part of JI, although a few of them have left, but they see part of their role is to speak against the use of bombings. So they are, regardless of whether they consider themselves members or not members of JI, whether they see themselves as going inactive, they still all hang out together. The Mindanao veterans, it's very s scattered. You have some very clear cases of recidivism with the Mindanao veterans. You also have cases of some successful disengagement like Ali Fauci, who spent a great deal of time hiding out in Mindanao and fighting in Mindanao and training in Mindanao. So there is no pattern for Mindanao. Was that kind of what you expected when you started going into this research, that you would find that certain patterns can be identified, but then at the same time you would speak to people who perhaps came from the same background and have fought in the same kind of conflicts, and then you wouldn't find any of these patterns. Was that what you kind of expected, or did you feel at the start that it would be easier perhaps to categorize the individuals that you were talking about? Well, in the book, I do find that 30 plus people 
experience these four factors, the waiting between the alternative social networks, the priority shifts, the disillusionment, the cost-benefit analysis, the waiting differs from person to person, the degree of development differs from person to person. But there is a very powerful trend line within this book and within the research. And that definitely needs to be understood. I think when I started this project, I think I assumed disillusionment was going to be more prominent than it was, but it it's, doesn't have the power that it has in the European cases. And that was very interesting to me. And the fact that ultimately it was about one's relationships and one's friendships, and that just as joining is a process of relationship building, so too is leaving. I think that was very satisfying to discover and to see that across groups powerfully and across ages powerfully and across cases powerfully. It took you several years to, you know, to research this and come to yes. these uh, powerful conclusions. Maybe I could take you back to that beginning of that research very briefly, to your expectations and your motivations. What, what prompted you in the beginning to conduct this kind of research project under quite challenging research circumstances? It started with being interested in disengagement programs. So I went to Indonesia in 2009 and did a short research trip around Jakarta and Solo. And one realization I had at that time was that people would talk to me. And I never expected that jihadists would talk to me. The next year, I went up to Poso with Iksan Ali Fausi from the Paramedina Foundation and Rizal Pangabayan, uh, the late Rizal Pangabayan from Gajamata University. And when I came back and presented some of the results, I was also able to do some interviews around Jakarta on that trip. And when I presented some of the results, I again, had this experience, oh, wow, people would talk to me. And do I want this to happen? So your background didn't make or didn't cause any problems. So you're not a Muslim, I believe. You're American no. and you're a woman. So that puts you into a particular position, I suppose, when meeting these former jihadists. But that wasn't a problem for you? What I found was in the cases where people accepted meetings, I was going in with people whom they trusted. Sometimes it was a matter of who asked. If someone was a good friend, they tended to agree to the meeting. If I asked with the wrong person, sometimes people would not agree. And so it was a matter of figuring out who, who is the person with the trust relationship who can do the ask. And... Typically, in those cases, if they trusted the person who was bringing me, that trust transferred on to me. So I was lucky. I was able to work with people and have some of their relationship and their trust relationship transfer on to me. And over years, I was able to build that relationship. But I think going back over and over again and building those relationships over time is probably what made the difference. And going back, that's what you did. And as you did, you mentioned earlier, you saw people getting into jail, getting out of jail, getting back into jail. So the trajectories that you observed over time, um, that must have been quite a fascinating part of the research. Did you see a particular trajectory uh, for people that 
actually managed reintegration into society? You said earlier on you never fully leave, so you maintain links into the organizations or into individuals from these organizations. But what does it take for these militants to actually become part of open society again? What facilitates reintegration very much is that establishment of the alternative social networks of friends and mentors and supportive family members. The creation of that priority shift, having the person decide that they are going to focus on their business, that they're going to focus on their family. I had one person say, I don't want to play jihadi anymore. I need to focus on my family. And I've heard this phrase, play jihadi, or go play jihad a, a few times with them. And since you never fully leave, the way that the alternative social network functions, it functions as counterweight. So you have this network of friends and mentors and family members. And so that when somebody comes from the group and says, hey, why don't we, we're doing this training. Why don't you join us? You say no, because if you do that, you'd lose all you would build. Your family would be angry. You'd lose your job. Your new friends wouldn't talk to you anymore. And so it becomes a counterweight. And I think that that, the alternative social network, is so critical to reintegration because it creates ties for you and enables you to return to society so that your new life has as much pull as the old life and hopefully in time even more pull than the old life. Yeah. So how can this building of alternative social networks can this be um, facilitated or pushed by external actors? Or is it really just a matter of what networks already exist from the life perhaps prior to uh, the radicalization? Or is there a way, say, for governments or for non-governmental organizations to actively create these kind of alternative social networks so that we can see more former militants disengage? I think that's a wonderful question, and that's like the $500 question. I think civil society can do it better than government. Government can be very active in facilitating those priority shifts by providing opportunities for life skills training and professional development. And this is where government can really have a sustainable role. Also counseling to rebuild frayed family ties or estranged family ties and making sure one has the tools to rejoin life. So you get out of prison, you need an ID card. If you have a business plan, maybe help developing that business plan, help finding money to fund that business plan. Maybe some small scholarships to be able to go back to school and get a degree. Hmm. All of these things are things to help someone create that alternative social network. However, I don't think the government can help you make friends. <laughs> it can definitely help you rebuild. However, the civil society programs, let's say, you know, the Institute for International Peace Building, part of what they are doing in going into prisons and starting conversations with these imprisoned members of Jamaat Islamiyah, 
Mujahideen Kompak and these other groups. Part of what they are doing is they are creating alternative social networks. They are themselves an alternative social network. In Poso, the late Rizal Pangabayan created a short course for disengaging militants from Poso who wanted to establish a microfinance outfit. And the microfinance outfit ended up not taking off. But part of what he did was he brought them first to Gajamata for a leadership training course. And then he sent them to intern with women-owned microfinance outfits across central Java. And these men had to cope with these truly impressive women, having them as their bosses and their seniors. And over the course of their time in those internships, it really challenged prior held views. And it really forced them to confront some of their assumptions. And one of the people that I met who was so angry before he participated in that workshop, and he was just waiting for the Christians to attack again. He was waiting. Uh, with bated breath, um, when I saw him the year following, he said that the reason that he was calm, the reason he had relaxed, the real reason he had disengaged was because he had mingled, because he had had this exposure to alternative ways of thinking, mm. because he had made new friends, different friends. I don't think the government can help you or um, the counterterrorism team Densus 88 can help you make friends, but they can do things to make that reintegration easier. And I think we can't underestimate the potential of counseling to rebuild frayed family ties. I think mm -hmm. that that's also, as I said, something that was very important. And that is something that they can provide. And that's something that they're really not providing. Yeah. Counseling is in is in short supply, I think, in Indonesia, especially for these yeah. kinds of uh, circumstances. I think I'd like to finish our chat here with a sort of an, an outlook, perhaps, or a discussion of the broader implications of your research. Um, so the patterns that you've identified for the members of Jama Islamiya and for the fighters from Poso, do you think they can be sort of re-identified in the sort of new wave of jihadists? Um, by the time you did your research, the circumstances were perhaps, at least for some, ripe for disengagement because Jama Islamiya had been significantly weakened through the counter-terrorism operations of the Indonesian police. The conflict in Poso was over. As you said, some former fighters from Poso came out of jail and saw that the city was peaceful now. So perhaps the external environment was conducive at the time. But then shortly afterwards, the circumstances for jihadist struggle changed with the rise of ISIS and the new appeal that came out of the Middle East and several Indonesians then went to Syria to fight there. Some of these have come back and there are concerns that they may spread a new kind of terror in Indonesia. But some have also come back seemingly disillusioned by what they saw in Syria. So I was wondering whether there is anything we can learn from the pathways to disengagement of the JI fighters and the POSO fighters for those who have gone to Syria to fight for ISIS and are now coming back to Indonesia. Well, I think one thing that we can learn is that 
in terms of programming, we do want to focus, especially for the deportees who tried to go to Syria and got turned around, and there's an extraordinary number of women and children among them. There, you want to focus on life skills training, professional development, perhaps some trauma counseling. You want to do careful monitoring to make sure that they are getting their needs met by the Indonesian government and not by the pro-ISIS networks. I think with the returnees, they also need careful monitoring, but professional development, I think, will be more useful and better received than de-radicalization. And this is something that was definitely found in my research was that de-radicalization is best achieved through lived experiences. One is more likely to reevaluate and reassess prior held views via interaction with others. And they're more likely to be resistant to evaluating those prior held views if they're being lectured at and talked down to. Our goal should be giving them the tools to reintegrate into society, not trying to promote a worldview overhaul and infuse them with nationalism. For example, the BNPT programs, the military has ascertained that people are radicalized due to deficits of nationalism. So a lot of the programming has been to remedy that. That's not what's needed. <laughs> what is needed is to make sure someone can live in Indonesia, live peacefully in Indonesia, in Indonesia live productively in Indonesia. And if they have gone to Syria, and they have come back disillusioned, and they have come back saying that ISIS was corrupt, and they have come back saying that this this was a mistake, that they were misled, that the life that they were told that they were going to be able to live was not the life they ended up living. And there is an indication that they are safe, then help them to see that they belong in Indonesia and that they have a place in Indonesia and that they can make a living in Indonesia. So out of these various fascinating insights, if you were asked to provide just one key piece of advice on how to best facilitate disengagement of Islamist militants, what would you emphasize the most? It's about who your friends are. It's about having that support of your family and your friends and your mentors and the people around you who want to see you rejoin society and who are willing to be there for you. I think that ultimately would be my takeaway message, that just as someone joins a jihadist group or an extremist group or a terrorist group due to the powerful relationships they make with mentors and teachers and friends in the group, and that gives them a sense of purpose and a sense of identity, so too is disengagement and reintegration most successful when it hits those same touchstones, having friends and mentors that give you a sense of purpose. And that doesn't necessarily mean invalidating the valuable things you took from your experience in the group, but it does mean that you see that as 
part of your past and your future is along a different path. Yeah, that's probably a fitting statement to end our conversation on. Okay. Um, thank you very much for that, Julie. Thank so you. that was Associate Professor Julie Chano Huang from Goucher College in Baltimore, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 15th of March for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.